3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resistance of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and you're listening to Tree CR. How are we all doing today? Very good, uh, Grace. Uh, very much looking forward to today's show, and it's a full bend. We're back together. Claudia, welcome back. Thank you. Only a, a week away, and uh, <laughs> I'm getting the welcome back, so uh, nice to be here. Feels empty, feels empty without you, Claudia. Oh, you're so sweet, Chris. The listeners want you back, Claudia. That's what yeah. they want. The listeners uh, out there, they're like, yeah, we yeah. need Claudia back for some informative, <laughs> informative topics and uh, yeah. they're very much looking forward, uh, should be looking forward to today's show. We've got some ripper uh, segues in today. Yes, exactly. Uh, so talking about important uh, matters. Yeah, we're going to be talking about bail reform, uh, the very long overdue bail reform. Uh, we're going to be talking Indigenous children and language mm-hmm. and talk housing. And Grace, you've got a, an interesting one talking about belonging at university. Is that right? Yeah. So a lot of us just started uni. I mean, I, this is my first day for my back in my last semester of my final year. And um, it's, yeah, I'm not, not looking forward. But um, <laughs> yeah. Um, some of my friends have really started because apparently the other universities um, have been way ahead of their time. But for some reasons, Latrobe is not. Um, but anyways, I guess glad that Latrobe is uh, starting a bit later in the uni- in the semester. But I'm still not looking forward to it. But um, yeah, ho- hopefully it's exciting. And then, but for some many of others, uh, it's their first semester of their entire uni life, and I'm finishing my last one. So yep, we're looking at. Student belonging is an interesting concept, but also at the same time not really new. It's a kind of like a typical thing that people uh, of like talking about how you should feel like you're you're belonging in class and you're enjoying. But at the same time, I guess people don't really talk about it much as well. So mm. going to mm. be interesting, just looking at the stats and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's probably something that um, you know people sort of suffer silently until they find you know, like, a oh, group or yeah. a routine or a sense of this is my place and I belong here. So it'd be really interesting to to hear what you're... It's always an, in, it's an, it's an interesting space because you've got the situation of, um, you know, year 12s coming through and they, they work their butt off and they're getting the ATAR and getting the VCE and then they end up going to uni and you hear the sad story of the person who had the excellent ATAR um, and this is probably happening too often now. This is something you could ask uh, at the lecturer for the University of Tasmania, Grace, about 
the the situation of that the perfect student going to uni for the first time and then failing the failing the course and it, it's quite scary. I don't know if it's just the way university is to school. It's very different in that space, but it's an interesting. Well, it's a very different environmental yeah, space, and you go from being a kid you know, to highly an managed um, at a school level where mm. you know parents are informed of what you're doing. Therefore, you've got parent checking in, teachers, less people to this massive. Uh, environment where you're all adults and no one really knows what you're doing except for you. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you don't, I suppose it's it can be quite overwhelming. Yeah, but I guess it's all just more of like um, just feeling like you're welcome because I think a lot of students, they especially international students, we don't know if we feel like we are welcomed here and because people don't really want to mix with us or something. So and I and. For some reasons, I think it's actually much harder to have uh, mix to have friends and get um, mixed with people in uni compared to high school. I think that's because um, we don't have the same classes every day. We have mm. different degrees. Mm. Some of us, yeah, some of us don't have like one or two classes or more together. So mm. I guess that's the difficult part. Mm, there. You're not with the same cohort all the yeah, time. Yeah, so I'm you? guessing. Yeah, so I guess that's why it's just really hard to settle in in uni. And plus different environments for a lot of us. And I think also the last couple of years with COVID, you obviously had huge periods where students weren't face-to-face. But also there's a growing tendency for people to, you know, maybe take some time off and a semester off. So not only are you not with the same cohort necessarily in each subject, but you've also got people taking different periods of time to complete the same degree, yeah, yeah, yeah. which also changes yeah. the the connectivity between yeah, exactly, individuals. yeah, exactly. Like we have three, we have like third years in the first year course, and mm. like a, like second year in the third year course, and it's just like, oh, okay, so we're all different. Um, I didn't know we could do that <laughs> when I yes. first came into uni. I was just like, I thought we all had to be first years to take first years, and then second years to second years. Okay, but wow, awesome. Anyways, yeah, so that's yeah, that's the thing there. And um, and yeah, and like with online, it was just really weird because until today, I don't I don't know half of the people who I've met online. Like I don't even know where they are. Mm, I don't mm. know if they actually exist. <laughs> so it's like it's just could be weird. AI, Grace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, yeah. So it's just so weird for me um, right. until today. But yeah. All right. Well, we we'll look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Now we need to get onto our headlines. I think. Mm. Um, so Pat, can you? Start us off. Will do. And uh, in some very sad news, the Ballarat-based uh, Bond Homes, the ABC are reporting, uh, will enter voluntary in administration as the industry turmoil continues. Uh, the ABC reported the Ballarat-based residential home builder for 20, uh, for 20 full-time staff has entered a voluntary administration after nearly 30 years of trading. Bond Homes built transportable homes in its Ballarat yard and had 16 homes under construction with four of those ready for handover. Part owner David Rowe told the ABC, said he was uh, he was devastated. Is the end of the business, um, quote uh, Mr Rowe, it is the end of the business unless someone comes along with a cash injection. Voluntary administration uh, Worrell said the company stopped trading immediately due to its financial position. It comes after the Australian building company Porter Davis went into liquidation in March, leaving 1,700 Victorian Queensland homes unfinished. Since 2021, over 2,500 Australian construction companies have gone into administration, liquidation or receivership. Yep, and on to news all the way at Perth, a group of extremist protesters have been accompanied by camera crews, uh, crews 
and they have apparently trespassed the family home of Woodside's energy CEO, Mac O'Neill, uh, just yesterday morning. The company, uh, Woodside, has said that the actions of the activists were organized and deliberately designed to intimidate Ms. O'Neill, her partner and daughter, where they, uh, where they reside at City Beach Residence at the time of the alleged incidents. Uh, it was at 6.45 in the morning. So, reports the camera crew were from the ABC were confirmed by the broadcaster later of that, in that, on that day, with the contingents believed to be interstate from its Four Corners program. Woodside has mentioned in a statement the group's actions were a personal scare tactic to, that distracted constructive debate about the company's global investments in fossil fuel projects. Ms. Um, O'Neill, who has been at the helm of the Perth-based oil and gas titan since August 21, 2021, has thanked the swift response of the police uh, to ensure the safety of her family. Uh, this is not the first time that uh, Woodside has been in clash with climate protesters. In June, they have threatened to sue two climate protesters from the Disrupt Borough Pub group for financial loss after accusations that one of the members released a stink bomb at the base of the company's 32-storey office in Perth, uh, which forced the evacuation of 1,500 workers. The Borough Hub is a group of gas elements on the Borough Peninsula near Karata in WA's Pilbar region that will use gas from offshore fuels operated by Woodside. Woodside, the $72 billion company, also plans to develop the carbon dioxide-rich browse, browse fields and pipe the gas 1,000 kilometres to the peninsula. And it is to be processed as its Northwest Shelf gas export plan that it wants to operate until 2017. And all this is according to National Indigenous Times. Mm. And the Great Barrier Reef has managed to stay on UNESCO's World Heritage List as the effects of climate change almost resulted in the reef being listed on the Endanger List. Although a draft report from UNESCO showed that the reef is in clear of being named in danger, it is still under serious threat of being destroyed by the effects of climate change. After a tour of the reef in 2022, the UN concluded that Australia's efforts had not been enough to protect the reef from climate change, listing poor water quality, harmful fishing activities and other threats. The World Heritage Committee will hold another vote in September to finalise the status of the reef as a World Heritage Site or in danger. The Australian Marine Conservation Society said the reef faces the fight of its life, with a possible El Nino increasing the likelihood of marine heat waves and coral bleaching. Um, 2023 Australia of the Year, Alma Singh will tour the country to raise support for the Indigenous voice to Parliament amongst ethnically diverse Australians. Singh, who is regarded as a local hero for founding SIGLET charity organisation, Turbans for Australia, will spend two months circumnavigating the nation to encourage Australians from diverse ethnic, cultural and religious backgrounds to support the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Joining the current Australian of the Year in his van for the first leg of the journey will be Sydney's first Indigenous councillor, Yvonne Weldon. Singh's journey can be followed and supported online as he has urged those looking to host or connect to make contact with him. And finally, the level of Australian-made children's content being produced by commercial television networks in Australia has significantly fallen the Australian Media and Communications Authority, ACMA, reported yesterday. 
According to The Guardian, the report states that between 2019 to 2022, the number of hours of locally made children's television dropped by 84%, down from 605 hours a year to 95 hours. The fall is attributed to a policy change effected by the coalition government in 2020, which removed the former quota system, replacing it with a points-based system to allow more flexibility for commercial broadcasters. The Australian Children's Television Foundation's submission to the Senate inquiry into the national cultural policy in March this year advocates for a robust policy framework, which includes strong institutions mandated to support Australian children's content and obligations to deliver children's content from broadcast and subscription platforms. Other industry representative bodies also assert the findings demonstrate a major failing in the policy framework. Interesting stuff. And that's all the headlines. Absolutely. Okay. A few announcements. Awesome. And then uh, we'll be back to talk about bail reform. Stay tuned. Cheryl and Troy have been married for more than 25 years. They spent 10 of those years living on the streets of Melbourne addicted to heroin. In a groundbreaking collaboration, photographer and writer Ali MC conveys the couple's compelling narrative in an audio-visual installation and photographic audiobook. H, A Love Story launches at Richmond Library on Wednesday, August 9 at 6.30pm. Entry is free and all are welcome. H, A Love Story, a project about love, heroin and homelessness on the streets of Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the US dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday 6th of August at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page No AUKUS Coalition Vic a 3CR supporter. And we're back listening to 3CR Breakfast. You're here with Grace, Patrick and myself, Claudia. And just a message to our viewers, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, um, the following segment contains the name of a person who has died Well, it's three and a half years since the death of unsentenced 37-year-old Gundit Chamara, Jajarurong Harajri and Yorta Yorta woman and mother Veronica Nelson. The incident sparked a backlash against Victoria's draconian bail laws. In January, the coroner investigating the death found it was preventable and recommended the Bail Act be urgently reformed. 
While Daniel Andrews has made promises, there has been no action, and recent reports that reform is still 12 months off has triggered more outrage. Narita Waite is the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. She describes the bail laws as Daniel Andrews' biggest policy failure. I spoke to her soon after the coroner's finding to find out why reform is taking so long and why it is so important. We're going to take a listen back now. Mr Andrews has had since 2018 um, to fix his mistake um, when it came to hasty reforms. Reforms, might I add, that it only took them four months um, to develop, introduce and pass. Uh, the fact that even at that stage, when those reforms are being introduced, bail was still considered non-compliant with the rickety recommendation from 30 years ago, um, suggested they've had more than enough time um, to develop an appropriate bail system that's fair for all Victorians and protects our rights to the presumption of innocence. Mm. It's um, quite amazing that despite all the recommendations, reports, reviews, inquiries and forums um, that Victoria has failed to implement changes. I mean, we've had this situation in the public uh, space for so long, calling it an incarceration crisis and, you know, on an Australian-wide level, it's been described as a second convict phase yeah, yeah, I think that's inappropriate. Uh, it just seems... I, call, I, I myself prefer to call prisons and munitions um, because of the way that um, they incarcerate and institutionalise and traumatise Aboriginal communities. Yeah. Um, why is it so difficult to get the government to act? Because the government fails to treat public health issues like health issues and instead go for the, what they see is the easy route, which is taking a justice approach. Um, and despite learning from generations that this approach doesn't work, and you know, even um, examples from other jurisdictions, like the example of Northern Territory right now, that shows you um, the justice approaches don't work, that you need um, long-term investment into public health matters, um, like housing, like infrastructure, obviously, um, primary and secondary health services as well as mental health support. Um, our client base, uh, so the 0.5 Aboriginal people arrested each day in Victoria, um, are suffering from mental health, from homelessness. Um, they're suffering um, from substance abuse. And rather than being able to access essential supports they needed, um, they're remanded on petty offending where they have no access to the services they require and they, in fact, don't have the same level of access as, an, as a sentence prisoner would do to support services. That includes healthcare. That's a really interesting um, distinction that uh, there's even inequity in the ability to access those supports um, within the prison population. Exactly. Um, and it adds to the overall inequality in the system. But um, you also must remember for both unsentenced and sentenced prisoners alike, the current health provision is substandard at its best description. Um, it's fatally flawed, uh, as we saw in the Veronica Nelson. Everything and everyone failed. Um, and quality frameworks were insufficient to ensure that people's healthcare was, health needs were met. And there was an inappropriate system to deal with those who have substance abuse issues. 
and in fact a destigmatization of any associated health issues they had. Um, that still prevails today. Um, and it's still, despite the government's announcement about changing St. Louis Frost Centre um, to a public health provider, men's prisons don't benefit from those healthcare changes. And instead, they'll be stuck with, prov- with private providers like Correctcare Australasia, who fail their clients at each and every stage. If you've just tuned in, uh, we're listening to Narita Waite, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, talking about the Andrews government's painstakingly slow response to Victoria's bail crisis. Narita has explained that bail reform intersects with flawed policies relating to the health and well-being of First Peoples. She said people denied bail and held in prisons are not entitled to the same health care as those who are heard and convicted. This seems paradoxical when you consider that these people are legally innocent. And it seems that somehow this fundamental tenet of the law, the presumption of innocence, seems to have been lost. I asked Nerita to take us back to this vital concept. I mean, the presumption is fairly uh, self-explanatory. It is that um, everybody has a right to innocence, and that's a presumption of innocence. And what that means is that where you are alleged to have committed an offence, you are not considered to have done that yet. You are still waiting for an outcome, whether it be um, a jury by your peers um, or whether it be by judge alone. Um, people who are sitting on remand have not yet gone through that, gone through that process, although because the presumption is against bail, they are treated as if they have already committed such an offence um, and they are guilty and a serious risk to community, which just isn't the case for many. Um, you know, of the many 3,000 Aboriginal people sitting on, back, sitting on remand right now, many of them will not be found guilty of an offence and many of them, even if found guilty, will not serve a prison sentence. So as a result of this system, we have an astonishing number of unsentenced or legally innocent people sitting in Victoria's prisons, and the number yes, that rate doubled. is rising exponentially. What are the key aspects that Vals wants to change in the current mm. bail law? Yes. In order, um, like we said, to protect... Um, that right to the presumption of innocence, um, as well as ensuring that we have a fair and just bail system. Uh, we believe the laws need to be urgently amended to remove the presumption against bail, create a presumption in favour of bail for all offences, with the onus on the prosecution to demonstrate that bail should not be granted due to there being a specific immediate risk to the physical safety of the person, a serious risk of interfering with the witness, or the person posing a demonstrable flight risk. And flight risk means actually fleeing a jurisdiction, um, and it can't be that they are unlikely to attend court for other reasons, so illness, um, inability to access the court, etc. Um, we would also want to see um, that there's a requirement that a person must not be remanded for an offence that's unlikely to result in a sentence of imprisonment. Um, that directly links to uh, the right to presumption of innocence, but also just create the fair system so that people like Veronica are not sitting in, in cells, in prison environments where they have no support, no cultural links. Um, and also removing the offence of committing indictable offence whilst on bail. Um, so it's breaching bail conditions and failure to answer bail. Um, this was an aspect that also caught Veronica up um, because she hadn't attended court um, due to familiar reasons. 
on the last occasion and therefore um, worked against her when she was um, trying to achieve bail on that fateful night. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on on that. There are some particular vulnerabilities that First Nations people face when it comes to bail. I'd like to ask you to explain what some of those factors are and what the specific changes you would like to see uh, addressing those barriers and vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean, certainly for us, um, when considering someone's Aboriginal in relation to bail decisions, um, courts and bail decision makers, so that means bail justices, that means police members, should consider relevant matters identified in case law and coroner findings, uh, which are things that we're all familiar with, such as over-policing Aboriginal communities and our representation in prison populations, um, ensuring they understand that Aboriginality is relevant to bail decisions um, through Section 3AAA, even if the individual's connection to their Aboriginality and culture has been intermittent throughout their life. Um, the role that cultural connection plays in rehabilitation and support, um, and the importance um, of understanding that custody is likely to be disrupted for a person's personal and cultural development. Personal and cultural development would obviously include matters such as um, their supports they currently have in place, housing, um, but also, as we learned through the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry into the criminal justice system, um, it's incredibly important that we also consider the role that that person plays in the family, particularly where children are involved, because if they are reminded um, and they are that child's primary carer, if there isn't a suitable family member, that child will end up locked in a child protection system, which, as we all know, is fatally broken. Um, specifically, though, just on 3A, um, we do think that there are distinct opportunities for amendment that should be considered. So making sure that if someone is unrepresented, as Veronica was that night, the bail decision maker must be required to make inquiries to whether that person is Aboriginal and that they are required to explain how they've discharged the obligation to consider Aboriginality in bail decisions. So that requires them to explain what information they've taken into account to understand why and how someone's Aboriginality is relevant to their bail hearing. And it would not be acceptable to say, well, the person is Aboriginal and they don't consider that relevant. We're listening to Nerita Waite, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. She's speaking about the problems with Victoria's bail system and what needs to change. Nerita mentioned something very relevant when considering the impact of these laws. First Peoples women are disproportionately represented in Victoria's jails. So what happens to the families they care for when bail is denied? Current bail laws in Victoria are destroying lives, families and communities. When you look at a particular case of Aboriginal women, uh, the vast majority of them are carers of children, um, carers of loved ones, um, and removing them from that environment means there is nobody to care for those people, which means, <coughs> apologies, that they end up um, institutionalised through trial protection systems, um, uh, through mental health, um, and all of um, the systems that really seek to traumatise and inflict harm on Aboriginal communities. It's also important to remember that the bail test can also affect children in a more direct way, in the sense that children face the same bail test as adults. Now, this might surprise somebody that a 10-year-old is in the same position as a 40-year-old before a bail decision maker, but that is how the system is set up. It's 
a really unfair situation which contributes to over-incarceration of Aboriginal children and especially the trap of breach of bail offences which lift children to exceptional circumstances. So, for example, if a child stole a chocolate bar, was given bail, and then while on bail they stole another chocolate bar, because of the, they breached um, their bail offence and the exceptional circumstances, they'll almost inevitably be held on remand. And all they've allegedly done at this point is steal two chocolate bars. Yeah, it's really we've had many extreme. clients. It is. And, um, you know, in the last month, we've had children um, arrested, um, particularly in residential care, um, for ridiculous things like taking food from the pantry or literally spilling milk. Um, so you have to understand how terrific it is that these children are facing the most punitive bail system. Um, in the country. And it also just doesn't make economical sense. I mean, it costs over 5000 a night to keep an Aboriginal child in prison. Could you imagine if that money was going into community support, how much better resource they would be, how they would be able to intervene at an earlier point to support families, to stay strong um, and to thrive? We're a long way from uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody recommendation that prison be used only as a sanction of last resort when uh, we hear those examples that you're giving. How are you going to approach your advocacy from here? And we've only got one minute left. How can our <laughs> listeners support you in your campaign? Yes. Um, so uh, certainly we'll continue to do what we have been doing, uh, which is briefing all parliamentarians on the community bail system um, and arguing for key reform. Um, we will continue um, to request people find our bail, bail petition, which you can find at bail.org.au, or you will also find there a link to our newsletter. And that was Narita Waite from Vowles speaking about the government's failure to implement bail reforms recommended by the coroner investigating the passing of Veronica Nelson. If you'd like to know more about Vowles' campaign and sign the letter that uh, they're prepared to write to the uh, government, you can visit the website www.valsvals.org.au forward slash fix Victoria's bail laws. And you can also support Val's work by donating on the same website. If anything in this segment has raised issues for you, please reach out to Lifeline 131114 or for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders only, call YARN 13 YARN or 139276. And we're going to be heading to a song. This is called Rock and Roll Heart by Lucinda Williams.
A very banging song for an early morning, but that is called Rock and Roll Heart by Lucinda Williams. I'll be Now I'll be speaking to Dr. Joseph Crayford, who is a senior lecturer in management at the University of Tasmania. So for many of us students, actually, at the moment, the semester has already started, while some always have our first days and some starting a new university life for the year. So as I'll be speaking to Dr. Joseph Crayford, we talk, we discussed about student belonging in university and how can students feel settled in and make friendships. Good morning, Joseph. Morning, how are you? Good, good, how are you? Yeah, good. Lovely. So can we first get you to explain this whole concept of what is student belonging? Yeah, so um, belonging comes from a a very famous piece of work in the 90, in 95. Obviously, people were belonging much before 95, but um, two professors spoke about the idea that uh, for people to belong and people to um, belong in a place, they needed to have a few high-quality relationships with um, other people that you, they cared about you and you cared about them and, and also that you interacted on a regular basis in a meaningful way. Mm, I see. And obviously there's research and studies done with this whole concept of it. Well, well, what did you discover with the students? Were the stats looking positive? Uh, the po- positive, one of, one of the questions I suppose we were asking was mm. the measure of belongings to each student across Australia fills in a national survey on um, what they call the student experience survey. If, if you're studying at the moment, you're probably, you're probably getting asked the same question right now because the government's currently in the um, survey period. And what we find each year is that generally teaching quality and questions around uh, student support and, and those kinds of things tend to be reasonably high. Up around the 70 to 80% of students tend to feel that they're doing okay in, in those areas. When it comes to sense of belonging um, and, and the degree to which they're engaged and connected with their peers, um, that tends to be much lower, and I think it's um, often in the, the 50s and 60s. Um, percent of people are experiencing a sense of belonging rather than, but also think that their quality of education is is still quite high. Mm. And I, you mentioned a bit about using machine learning as like a way to like uh, conduct the study. Could you explain what that was? Because it's quite interesting of like how you use that to predict the student belonging. Yeah, machine machine learning is a hard one to explain on a breakfast show, but I'll give it a go. Um, <laughs> One of one of one of the things that we try to do was go into this into the research piece where we got all this national data and asked the question, what actually predicts and changes belonging? Um, what we found uh, was quite interesting. But what we did was actually put all the data into a machine and ask the machine that question itself. So rather than saying to the machine, "Hey, we think that this thing uh, predicts." something else. So we think that interactions or human connection predicts belonging. We said, what do you think actually predicts belonging? So the machine builds up, in our case, it builds up a tree of different relationships. Um, so if you think of like a decision tree, like, did I go to the movies last night? Yes, no. Did I buy popcorn? Yes, no. Um, was that popcorn uh, buttered or not buttered? Yes, no. And it does a series of these decision pathways using the data that we've provided. And over time, it builds uh, what we call a, a forest. So it builds lots and lots of these different decision models. And our our model um, uses builds one tree and then it looks at the last tree and says, how do I improve on that tree? And keeps building until it has a model that really works. 
um, you're probably quite familiar with mach- machine learning's now kind of um, come out as quite mm. a popular concept because uh, things like ChatGTP is like around and Bard, but it's been around for a long time. You know, if you've got Spotify um, and you take the recommended um, the recommended songs, it uses your old songs that you've listened to to tell you what you might like to listen to based on other people who've had similar combinations of songs. So that's machine learning in a nutshell. Hopefully everyone's still awake. <laughs> I think I think I think uh, the listeners managed to really understand very well because I, because I think a lot of us have probably done surveys like this. Are asking? I think it's also kind of like the personality test as well. Like they will ask you, "What did you do during your day? Uh, do you prefer this or do you prefer that?" So I think it's very relatable to like how this machine learning kind of study is conducted. So yeah, I think our listeners definitely uh, should be awake already. Actually, <laughs> yeah, um, excellent. Yep. Yeah. And so obviously we know that this whole concept, it's it's been a thing for a long time. Like it's just, we, we all know like settling in uni, making friends, that's boring thing. It might seem like, oh, we all know it. It happens a lot. It's a common thing now. But it's also like a silent issue, don't you think? Like it's many students face this, but, uh, and it's like an everyday issue, obviously. But then why do you think we should pay more attention to it? Like for the students' well-being? Yeah, there's, so there's a number of universities around the world that actually require their students to attend um, orientation sessions. There's a number mm. of universities that have like week-long orientation sessions where you have to be there for the entire time. Mm. And they be- they believe in those spaces that's because if you put students in the right place with the right supports around them, they'll make a few friends and they'll, as a result of that, persist and have a support circle that actually understands what they're going through. Uh, in In other studies across the world, We've seen um, people predict uh, the likelihood a student would leave their studies, so the likelihood the student would quit university on the basis of the number of teachers they can name or the number of friends that they can name in their class. Um, I suppose I suppose, in many cases, when you go through adversity, and universities are always going to be a bit of a tough experience for students, you're learning new things, you're experiencing a new... Um, uh, experiencing new ways of thinking and new ways of doing... Um, and, and that produces some degree, some degree of uh, natural anxiety that's probably quite expected among student cohorts as you're doing a new thing. Um, the first time you ride a motorbike, I suspect everyone's probably feeling quite a lot of anxiety. The first time you're learning about a new concept, mm. perhaps the same thing. And so having a support circle that actually is doing that with you, so sitting in your class with you and that you walk out of the class and you go, oh, geez, I don't know what that lecturer was talking about today. That was... Um, well outside of what I was thinking about. Um, or actually, that was really interesting. And you, and you start to bond over those experiences where you're struggling and also you're doing well. And so support to settle, support to make connections at that early stage might help when you get to those, um, the two days before the assessments are due and you find a little line in, the, in one of the online content pieces that means you have to go do something else that you didn't realise. And that's, that's where you need your friends. And... As much as we probably come into university with lots of friends, mm. if, if, they, if, they, if they haven't been through university and they haven't done that experience, they're not going to be able to relate to you in the same way that you know, your classmates might. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's true. Especially um, if a lot of us, like I know for me, a lot of my friends are actually up from university. That's because I, I thought it was quite hard to make friends in because in uni because like a lot of us we don't take the same course we don't take the same subjects of like or two of more of them and the fact that 
we have like third years in second year courses and first years in second year courses. So it's just so different. Everyone is so different. And a lot of us don't even come to uni that often. Like they're probably uni twice a day, twice a week or three times a week. So I guess that's where like all this intersections of things comes together and just making it very hard to make friends in uh, university. But, uh, but you also mentioned something about like how we can have university teaching stuff to like I guess facilitate that social connection um, yep. yeah so so in terms of there was kind of two ways that I think university staff could actually support connection and belonging the first one's in class mm. but this one was less important so mm. the way that the way that we found that um, people could build connections and that we'd, we'd support a sense of belonging was by building teamwork skills in class mm. it wasn't by having group work um, group assignments didn't seem to be an important part of that conversation, but teamwork skills did. And perhaps that meant that students that had teamwork skills then left the class and went and did something with people outside of class, but on campus and built connections. And the comment you made before was quite an important one, that mm. we, we progressively have students coming onto campus less frequently. And uh, now, because they're, they're oriented and anchored by their class structure, but a lot of students... 10 years ago and 20 years ago, it didn't matter what, when they had class, they'd be on campus from nine to five. So they'd jump into campus, they'd meet up with their friends in the library or the local cafeteria or whatever those things were and then work on their content together. Um, and that was a very normalised process. That was a normalised process when I was in university um, and I suspect it was probably even more so um, years, years before then again. But progressively, as, as students start to work and they start to have, um, be a little bit older, so sometimes they have families that they're looking after, those experiences become more complex because it's not very easy to go to campus from nine to five every day and actually study, even if you only have a couple of classes to work through. But those spaces, the spaces outside class, when you're actually making connection with students, that was one of the most important contributors to belonging, the quality of spaces that weren't teaching spaces. Mm. Um, and accessing and using those spaces is something that I suspect probably would help students quite a lot. Mm, I see. So it's, I guess it's just really up to the students' responsibility here um, in really facilitating their connections with other people. But then I guess also a lot of people might just keep thinking and saying it uh, arguing that like oh no but it's just oh no because of this person or because of that person like they they just don't want to make friends with me or maybe like uh during class the teachers are like uh just really boring and just not uh, into what they're teaching maybe maybe because this was affected by like the bad day or something so in your opinion do you do you really think um the support nearly comes from the non-students the or the, the university or is it really just really should it really just be entirely up to the students yeah so i think the um the, the non-academic fact like or at least the data right the data was telling us that the non-academic components of study were the were some of the most important for learning but also the opportunity to connect with other people and staff can do something you know academics can do something about this i'll tell, I'll tell you a short story of uh when i when i was doing a lot of face-to-face teaching and we had slightly larger classes i do a bit more online and a bit more flexible now but mm-hmm. i used to go to the class 20 minutes before the class started and locked the door. Um, so it was a, you know, a 30 or 40 person workshop um, and I'd locked the door. Mm. And what that meant was that students had to wait in the hallway kind of awkwardly. <sighs> and I did this on purpose. Um, you know, they had to, there, was only, there was only about 20, 20 seats. They'd kind of stand around, they'd hover. 
But what they would do is they'd start saying, oh, um, how are you going with that assignment? What's, um, you know, what's... Did you understand that lecture, that thing that he said about X, Y, and Z? Like, um, and if you contrast that, right, so what happened was students started bonding in the hallways because they mm. had to, because you, it's, they, they call it the water-cooler conversation, but they kind of had to because they couldn't open their laptops up and start typing away. They couldn't get their phones out because they were, they were in a close proximity to each other that they didn't do those things. So over time, they bonded. Um, when I started doing that with some of my classes, those classes tend to perform well on their, uh, better on their studies and materially better on their studies. They tended to rate their, their student experience much higher um, because the, the opposite of that is that if you leave the door open, they walk straight into the classroom and most students walk straight into the classroom, they find their seat that they always sit in and they then open their laptop up and they start scrolling around on Facebook or uh, TikTok or whatever the things they're doing and they don't have the opportunity to connect because they then go into the world that's not university. And so, yes, academics can do uh, some things to build, I think, spaces and opportunities for mm. students to connect. But it, part, of it, part of it is willingness as well. So I, I think it's, that's changing quite a lot now. We're seeing students come, come, to, come to class and kind of be quite quiet. So it used to be in my third-year classes, my final year, I, I teach leadership, um, mm. my final year of classes, you couldn't make the students shut up. It was really hard to get, to, it was really hard to get students to kind of quiet down um, and be active. And first-year classes were the opposite. First-year classes, students would walk in and be silent because most of them were coming from schools where they listened when the teacher talked and they spoke when they were kind of asked, um, whereas the third-year students kind of learnt that that's not how university works. And now, now it's a little bit different. It seems that um, students for whatever reason, I'm not sure, aren't quite like that. So they're a bit more quiet, they're a bit more reserved, they're a bit more distracted by things happening outside the, the classroom. Mm, well. I, yeah, I guess I guess sometimes it can't be helped that certain students have social anxiety or maybe because a lot of people are uh, can be introverted and especially like, or maybe they're nervous on their, like, their first day of class being in a new environment and... I know for me, when I was when I first started uni, I didn't know a single person kept coming here uh, to Australia. Uh, yeah, l- l- not just in uni, just let alone coming to the new country where I've never stayed by myself the entire time because obviously my parents couldn't come with me when I was here. So I guess just that feeling of not knowing a single person as well, I think that affected me a lot in terms of like trying to settle in and plus also cultural differences. So yeah, it's very, and it's, but it's very interesting with the way you have facilitated to get the students to bond with each other that's that's actually very interesting it's like getting uh kids during kindergarten to like have a chat with each other and talk to each other on the like the first day of school getting to um know one another quite interesting concept there yeah, oh, yeah well, we, we like to protect ourselves i think sometimes <laughs> so if we're if we're feeling anxious and uncomfortable and you know i'm, I'm introverted by nature too so mm. um getting in front of a lecture theater of hundreds of people is something i had to kind of work up to doing uh but we start, we start feeling uncomfortable when we, we go to our kind of things that protect us. So mm. for students, it's, it's sitting on your laptop quietly or when you now people wait for coffee. And mm. if, if you look at people waiting for coffee um, now versus 20 years ago, now a person will order a coffee and then go stand in the corner and start looking at their phone without looking up. And they'll avoid making yeah. contact because they don't want to have to kind of, they're not quite sure how to engage in the same way yeah. beforehand. Whereas as much as we... Um, those experiences are uncomfortable. 
the way that we become comfortable with them, most psychologists say something similar is by practicing. And so by little experiences, by doing those things, for me, a leadership, a leader has to be someone who can relate and be around other people. Mm. And so I'm like, actually, I need to have the students able to make connections and start building them in a safe place. Because in this case, they only have about 10 minutes before I walk into walk in the classroom. So yeah. 10 minutes is a good opportunity for them to do a little bit of, um, hey, hey, going like, we just got locked in the classroom. <laughs> um, or, you know, those kinds of things. Because then all of a sudden they start to bond over their things they agree with and, and bond over things they disagree with as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, I relate a lot. And I, I'm really glad that we have uh, teachers like you to be able to like help students bond, each, bond over each other. And yeah, I, I relate a lot to the whole coffee thing as well. Oh my God, that's something I do very often because I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going to look at anyone, anyone else. I'm just going to do my thing and I'm just going to stay there, wait for my coffee and then get it and get out. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I, I told, also, yeah, I relate a lot to the introverts as well because yeah, it's just also because if they don't feel safe or they don't feel inclusive into like, uh, if someone doesn't approach them first to talk to so yeah it's very understandable that it takes time for people to open up and slowly start, start to make friendships and settle in, in uni so yeah totally understand that um, yeah. yep so Joseph thank you uh, th- we are unfortunately running out of time but thank you so much for coming in and sharing all these amazing concepts and stories of student belonging you take care yeah, yeah no right thank you awesome thank you so much okay bye bye and that was Dr. Joseph Crayford, who, was, uh, who is a senior lecturer in management at the University of Tasmania. We basically discussed a lot of interesting concepts with student belonging in university and how can students feel settled and make friendships and is it really more of their responsibility or the open, safe environment outside in university. Interesting concept there, everyone. How did you think? What did you think of it? I like the idea of locking the door before you walk into yeah, class. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that's something um we, we had a lot during like especially during high school like um because sometimes some I don't know I'm not sure if that's often common in Australia but I know that in my back in Malaysia in my class uh, for my classes I'm not we are not allowed to get into classrooms bef- uh, unless the teacher is already in the class like we're not allowed to just sit there and wait for our <laughs> teachers like we usually have to stand outside in a line wait for our teachers. Before they come, but b- before they come in, so we always had to be outside, and the only thing we could probably do is just just stand there and talk to one another. So I guess it's like unknowingly helping us to bond bond with one another, but it's also kind of like a discipline because that was like something we had to make sure we do as kids to mm. like yeah form a line, get in class. Okay, yeah. yeah. You certainly don't form a line at university. But, um, <laughs> There's no yeah. line. If there was a line at university, the you'd corridors see a and the coffee truck are, are good places for. Saying hello and conversation yeah. and also initiating yeah, yeah. a bit of conversation or yeah. yeah, but I guess that's also I guess it can only happen if we knew each other because I think it would be really awkward to like yeah, yeah. go up to a stranger and like hey um how are you doing <laughs> and all like but obviously if they're in a the line and then that's just one of the small conversations <laughs> that you could spark there but yeah how was uni for you Patrick like what, what did well you- my uni was a little different i did well my first year was normal uh so 2019 i had those experiences of waiting in in hallways and waiting for lecturers and professors and the likes of in journalism and you'd be stuck having conversations about what's on and, and journalists being journalists i think we talk more so we could we could have more discussions but i know 
uh, I know from that it was really good in that social aspect. I got to meet someone from America, and I'm good friends with him now. He lives in Baltimore and is an engineer student. And that mm. that was a subject where we were learning about Australian history, so I didn't expect to be with all these uh, uh, you know international students. So it was quite cool in that space. Uh, my second year, unfortunately, was COVID COVID prone, so we had the shocking situation of COVID and Zoom and the likes of that, which did not help that social interaction. That was something I missed, and that was an observation uh, my parents made and also family, friends, and the likes of those observations uh, that they made was interaction and how important that is. And then third year, a bit of, a bit of everything. So COVID, and then we didn't have COVID, and then we had COVID. So we had a mixture of those interactions, and I felt, mm. I felt I'm lost. I think I... I think what I lost was my university friends and those university friends are no longer because of just those interactions weren't as frequent. And I think, I think also um, I'm seeing now with my brother who's doing a university at Melbourne, um, he's having a great time because he's having those interactions with people. And uh, you know, even though it's a different degrees in veterinary science and those who might be listening going, I'm a veterinary science student as well. You make those interactions and you learn from people. And I think those connections is what is so important at university because you don't know in, especially in journalism, I know this, a lot of my, a lot of my former uh, people who I worked with uh, at university at school, uh, as in doing my thing and that, and now journalists themselves, so you connect with them in a in an employer base. So it's pretty cool in that space as well. So you don't know where you could lead up with those with your with your peers. Um, is the best way I can describe it, Grace. Mm. Yeah, I think having a journalism degree and learning journalism is very very helpful for a lot of us journalism students because we really need to talk. You really really need to talk and interact <laughs> with people when you do journalism and media. So I guess. Uh, it helps me a lot in terms of like interacting with people here and understanding how we work around one another. So yeah, and I suppose because you're also engaging with current affairs and ways of communicating, yeah, 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 exactly. you've also got a segue into a conversation. Yeah, of yeah. what's going yeah. on? Or you also the other hand of that is you've got to just be careful of what you, what opinion opinion you have <laughs> on true. something. And I, and I felt I felt that over the uh, my first year of university, it was a it was a bit of a point of difference and on the election result in 2019 and. Uh, I was sitting at the back, very quietly, keeping my uh, my my opinions to myself because I felt sometimes I don't want to cause tension in the in a very fr- in a fun class. Sometimes, Claudia, sometimes you want to keep the fun class fun, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. <laughs> well, speaking of fun, um, we're going to be moving on to talk about baby talk. Yeah. So going into a bit more interesting concept of language, uh, actually coming up this August fourth should be a Friday. Yes, it's a Friday. It will be National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day. It's celebrated across the country each year on the 4th of August. It's a time for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and communities to celebrate the strength and culture of our children. In, 1990, in 1988, just getting a bit into the history, the first National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day established as was set against the backdrop of protests led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their supporters during the bicentennial year. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people decided a day was needed to celebrate the children to grow their confidence and help them feel special and included. So we're going to be revisiting a conversation with Dr. Ricky Dr. Ricky Bundagard-Nielsen, who, who is an experimental psycholinguist with a particular interest in inquiring and processing Australian Indigenous languages. And she basically made a discovery with using the Walpiri language, where it helps little kids to learn how to speak. So we're just going to listen back into that. Let's take a listen. Good morning, Ricky. How are you? 
good morning. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> All right. So, can I first get to know what is baby talk? Just for our listeners to understand what that means. Yes, baby talk is a. Uh, one of many registers that, that we use when we speak to, to people in particular contexts or settings. So, so we will be speaking about a, a register that's used for, for babies and, and it, well, for little kids into kind of childhood. Um, and it's a variety or a register that's characterized by the use of simple sentences, so, so not complex sentence structures. A use of a smaller vocabulary and, and special words like nana for banana. But it's also characterized by things that we don't really maybe um, do as consciously or are, are as aware of as we are of the sort of the vocabulary things, for instance. People tend to use a higher pitch um, and they tend to do something else that's really, really interesting. They tend to modify or change the way they produce their vowel sounds when they speak to children. Mm, interesting. And so, uh, is there a reason why we have this, or is this just something that very naturally comes out? Of, as... Well, I think it is very natural, but you're mm. right that there's, there's good reasons for doing this. Um, mm. And there's lots of research out there that has shown that, that using this particular register with, with babies and children mm. um, helps children in, in a number of ways. It helps them regulate their emotions because it sounds positive, it sounds um, warm. Mm-hmm. And it also helps communication because, of course, making things simpler is, is a way to, to secure that you have clear communication with a young child. But it also atten- uh, draws attention, the way that we speak to young children, the pitch changes, and makes to make children listen more for, for child-directed speech. And importantly, it also teaches language structure. So it teaches the the vowel inventory, for instance, um, to to babies under the, in the first year of life, um, and our study shows it's also doing something that teaches older children about language, and it teaches them specifically about words. Mm, I see, interesting. And then with with the whole study about baby talks, we basically a lot of them have been based on studies of European languages, as mentioned in uh, an article. Yeah. And then, obviously, a lot of these, uh, as as also mentioned, they are predominantly in Western, educated, industrialized, which rich democratic cultures. So, and and what you have this, what you have recently discovered was basically with uh, with the use of the Walpiri language. So, and that comes into our main topic of the discussion. So, you've used the Walpiri language. So, can we first get to know what this language is, and then after that, we go into what's so new about this discovery, and, <laughs> and that that is different for the whole baby talk. Yeah. Yeah, so, so European languages, especially the ones um, that have been predominantly studied um, in, in many domains of language research, including child language or child-directed language, mm-hmm. they're, they're the, the main European languages. We, they've, they've been receiving a lot of attention, and in some regards, um, that's helpful, of course, mm-hmm. but in other regards, it's not very helpful because the world is full of wonderful languages, including the Australian indigenous languages. Mm. And there's a lot of variety in the shape of these languages in the world. So if we just look at at one small sample, like the European languages, we end up getting a very skewed or narrow view of what what humans do, what language acquisition is, and and, and what kind of constraints there might be on on what humans can do when they learn languages. So it's really important that we look at, at typologically diverse languages. So that's languages that aren't European, 
mm. languages that are spoken in, in a wide range of cultures because, of course, that's what we do when we raise children is, is culturally determined, not not specifically linguistically determined. So it's really, mm. really important that we get that diversity in the in the sample that we look at. And Warpuri is a, is a Central Australian language. It's, it's one of the bigger ones in, in Australia these days. Um, it has about 3,000 speakers, so that's, that's a big language, um, relatively speaking. And it means, thank goodness, that it's still being transmitted to children. Children are still acquiring Warpuri, and that's fantastic. Mm, that's really interesting. And... and s- I think of I think you also then mentioned that there was a first finding, a first time finding regarding the use of the Wapredian language for baby talks. Can you explain what that was? Uh, yeah. So, so the so what we found Wapredian is is different from English um, and German and French and all the other European languages. In one important um, area that that is central to much of the child language research, child language direct research, and that is that. English and Danish and German, French, all have lots and lots of vowels. Walpuri has only three. And that means that, that there's maybe room for more exploitation of the of the vowel space in Walpuri. It's less constrained. And that's exactly what our study shows. Our study shows that, that Walpuri caregivers can use the characteristics of Walpuri, these three vowels, to very specifically teach young children about the the shape of, of, of nouns, about the, the words for things. So we show that not only do Walpuri caregivers use a child directed register, right? This is a first in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also um, use it in a way that's different to what has been demonstrated for, for English um for, for German, for for French, where where yes there's there's Definitely vowel hyperarticulation, we call it, mm-hmm. but it, it's not necessarily used in exactly the same way. So, Walpuri caregivers use their child directed speech not only to hold child attention, but also to scaffold learning, which is which is so cool. <laughs> mm, I see. That's very interesting. And so, be, so basically, with these three different vowels that being used, it's kind of like also it goes into the very main basic of what children would generally learn first and when they first get to speak. Exactly. So the the vowels are, the vowel learning is is supported by this. So learning the the sounds of your language, but it it continues into the the second and third year of life, which is which is um, a, a period where you're not so much learning the sounds of your language. You're learning the the words. You're learning the grammar, and and making sure that you get high quality information about the shapes of the words. Right. If you if the words you're learning are articulated very clearly. Then, then they're much easier for you to kind of pick out of the speech stream as a as a young child, um, and Walpuri caregivers do this so so beautifully. Mm, I see. Very it's interesting. Like a, it's like a highlighter, basically. Ah, okay. And coming into uh, the mentions of the Walpuri caregivers, so with your research that you have done, you basically videoed four. Uh, Wapri speaking caregivers, and in, and yep. there was in, this this was in conversation with the familiar adults and four young children, and they were aged between two to three at their homes, and you mentioned that they you you deliberately considered the real life social context of these conversations. Is, is there a reason why for that? Yeah, most of the research that's out there um, on on any language is is research that it's it's wonderful research, but it's research that is very lab centered. 
And that means that, that caregivers from whatever language background they have come into baby labs or, or labs in universities in unfamiliar circumstances. And, and the caregivers are given typically toys and to, to play with, with their children. And that mm-hmm. session is recorded. And the data from, from the play session, um, typically the, 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 the names for the choice that they've been given is, is analyzed. To compare that data, the child-directed speech, to adult-directed speech, you, you usually invite the caregivers to then subsequently have a conversation, maybe about the same toys, with some, someone from the lab. So it might be a researcher or a research assistant, and they have a, a short conversation to provide a kind of comparison data set. That's, that's not a very ecologically valid uh, approach to take, right? We, we've got very different relationships between the caregiver and the child compared to what we have between the caregiver and the, and the other adults. But we also have a very strange environment in which to, to um, record the data. So we recorded people in or near their homes, mm. and we recorded them talking to someone else, as who, some other adult who, who they know and, and care for. So that means we've got a situation where we've got um, meaningful social relationships in, sort of um, in, built into our data collection procedure. Mm, I see. But then I think I think our listeners might be curious because obviously uh, I, I, I study linguistics as well. So I, I just love le- learning about, more about uh, languages in general. And then what I, yeah. under- what I understand is that... Um, when people are, are aware they're being filmed and being recorded, they also kind of still change the way they make sure they emphasize their con- their words and the way they pronounce. So did this uh, did did this in any way affect the the research? So so the the recordings themselves are done by basically the people themselves. Mm-hmm. So we we to the extent that it's possible, and this this may never really truly one hundred percent be possible. Mm-hmm. To the extent it's possible. We are, we are trying to avoid what's called the observer's paradox. That's mm-hmm. much harder to avoid in a lab setting, right? Because you might, if you're, a, if you're a caregiver and you brought your child in, you might feel silly about using baby talk in the lab setting. Some mm-hmm. people feel like that there's absolutely nothing wrong with using baby talk. It's very helpful to babies. But in, in, in some people's minds, it might still be something they worry about being heard doing. And that, of course, we take out of the equation for, for, for this type of study. Um, as well as we take out the the kind of the awkwardness that you might feel talking to a researcher you've never met before, and maybe having a conversation with an adult about a a toy sheep, a toy shark, and a toy shoe. Right? It's, mm. it's a bit weird, mm. and that part is 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 eliminated from this type of experimental design. Mm, I see. Very interesting, and um. Dr. Ricky, unfortunately, we're going to be running a bit out That's of time right. soon. But I just want to ask you one last question. So. And so now, with in regards to this whole entire discovery, why do you think this has become so important for research uh, in regards to child-directed speech? Because we, we we don't know enough about what the parameters are. We don't know enough about what people can do mm. when they use child language or child-directed speech. We don't know how it helps children. And if we don't know what scaffolds typical acquisition we also have a hard time assisting, for instance, atypical developing children. So there's a lot of, of sort of um, downstream um, benefits from, from having a, a wide sample, from having good representation of, of all types of, of cultures and languages in child, direct, in child language research. 
Mm, I see. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Ricky, for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. You take care. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was psycholinguist Dr. Riki Bungard Nielsen discussing the concept of baby talks using the Walpuri language and its ability to help young Australian First Nations children learning how to speak. And a reminder this Friday is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day 2023, and there are many events on, so check out the uh, website www.aboriginalchildrensday or one word forward slash events. And you'll, uh, if you've got young children, you'll probably find your local childcare centre is hosting an event, and you can also check out your local library because there are lots of story time uh, programs on for preschoolers this Friday. Now over to you, Patrick. Thanks very much, Claudia. All good. No stress. Um, we will now be speaking to the host of 3CR's show, Raise the Roof, Fiona York, discussing Labor's reinduction of the bill of the Housing Australia Fund. Uh, this was blocked in October uh, and it's now coming back. Fiona, how are you going this morning? Good, Patrick. How are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, so, Fiona, firstly, the Housing Australia Fund bill, this was a big election promise uh, by Labor in the 2022 federal election. Firstly, what will this? what is this fund consisting of in the development of houses in Australia? Is this based around public or social housing or is it more around the private market? Yeah, so the fund is an investment of $10 billion um, and that investment is presumably in the stock market, not in direct housing. But what they're hoping for is that when they invest that $10 billion, they will generate a profit on that investment. Um, they're aiming for around $500 million a year, and then that will go back into building housing. Um, the housing that they're proposing to build is social and affordable housing. They haven't said whether or not it's public housing. Um, and then there was an amendment to that, well, not an amendment to the bill, but um, an additional amount after the Greens and the Independents, particularly David Pocock, who's the ACC Senator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they said that they wanted more direct investment in housing, not just investing in the stock market. Um, and so there's an additional, on top of that, $2 billion direct investment in housing. And the state governments need to um, report back to the federal government this month on what they're planning to do with that money. Um, and so they've been told that they have to spend it within two years and they can either purchase new housing or they can repair their existing public housing. So, yeah, as well as the Housing Australia Future Fund, which is basically a bucket of money that they're hoping to generate through making a profit on investments, there's now an additional direct investment. Yeah, okay, so that's that's fascinating. That's an, that's an update to what the bill was proposed yeah. um, only last week and uh, they're, they're looking to reinduce it, as we, as I've already said. Fiona, it's quite interesting how you say that uh, that money's going back to the states. Uh, you know, yeah. we've seen what our own state government is doing in Victoria um, with public housing. It's a it's a fascinating space there. We've seen the situation what's happening at Barack Beacon, uh, a state yeah. in Port Melbourne, and those listening will be familiar with the situation there that's unfo- unfolding. And um, unfortunately, Margaret Kelly is being evicted on August seventh. So. 
Uh, do, do you think you see that money actually going towards public housing? Like we've just seen what the, the government, the, the state government's proposal is to public housing. They, they want to move on with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it a fascinating space. Yeah, it is interesting because Albanese was in Victoria for the state conference for the Labor Party a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago now. Mm. And in during that um, announcement of this direct investment money that they've announced, they did say that it needs to remain in government hands mm. um, and that that money needs to stay 100% public housing. That's quite a shift from what we've seen in recent years where all sides of government have been divesting from public housing and transferring it into the community housing sector and affordable housing, so-called. Um, so, yeah, that, if that's true, then that's a big shift if they do say that it needs to stay in pub- public hands. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's fascinating, that space, Fiona, because, you know, we, uh, you know, it's funny, if the state's on a different page to the federal side, mm. <laughs> you know, that's an odd thing, Fiona, as we know, and uh, with uh, apart from Tasmania uh, being liberal-held, every other uh, state is Labor, Labor, so they might have a, they have different ideas and different plans for each state, as we know, Victoria has a different idea, I know. New South Wales, I think the premier premier there and Minns, uh, Chris Minns, have got a different idea to public housing, and that's mm. a different different space as well. The fascinating thing I like to know about this bill is the Greens and the Independents have been quite vocal on the changes they proposed to this bill, and it seems like that's going to be uh, uh, going to go through, which is good in that space. Do you, do you think that the Greens are now the kingmakers in the in the housing policy? Do you do you believe that probably they're going to be the, the more uh, the best way of putting it would be the more logical people in, in the space of housing? Oh, I wouldn't want to say that. I think I think at the moment having the independents and the Greens in the Senate means that they can push for improvements in Labor's bill, mm. which is what they're doing, and that's why we've ended up, I think, why we've ended up with this extra investment. Whether or not, um, whether or not it's a, the, the, the hold-up at the moment um, for the bill is around rental laws. And that's a different kettle of fish, really, because mm. rental rental laws are the jurisdiction of the states. And so the federal government will have to negotiate with the states on what they do with their laws. Um, and I think it is a really good thing that we can talk about rental laws in the federal space because there's no consistency across the country. Um, and Victoria has slightly better rental laws than some of the other states, but um, we still have a long way to go for, for renters. So if... If there is a way for the federal government to influence the the state ministers, um, then that you know for a positive change, then I think that's a good thing. But I wouldn't go as far to say that the Greens are the kingmakers in this space because <laughs> yeah. we're, we're yet to see what this bill hasn't been passed yet, and we're yet to see what actually is going to happen. But the fact is, the housing the housing issue is now massively on the agenda in a way that has never been before. And this is a good thing. We're talking about it. Um, we're seeing we're seeing actual money coming and and change happening. Um, so all of all of the discussion around housing is something that's pretty much unprecedented. Yeah, definitely. And I think also another sp- another weird angle to this as well, Fiona, is, and listeners may not be aware, the bill was introduced in October and the bill was not uh, passed. 
uh, and meaning and meaning and this is the weird thing about our constitution in Australia is uh, if you want to propose the same bill six months in advance, mm. uh, you've got to make sure it actually passes because you may be in the situation of a double disillusion election. And for those listening, going, what's a double disillusion? Double disillusion election? There's <laughs> like a tongue tied here, Fiona. Uh, th- that is where both the Senate and the lower house, um, what we see is the the, the lower house, uh, all have to dissolve and. Um, we all have to go back to the polls, which has only yeah. happened in 2016 with Malcolm Turnbull's um, government, and that was due to a, a completely different policy that was regarding uh, climate change, if I remember correctly. Uh, so it, it's a fascinating space. So they, the government doesn't want to lose this one. Am I, am I right on that? I'm right in saying that, Fiona. Well, I don't know if either of them would actually want to go back to an election. To be honest, yeah. um, I, 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 I think that. Having an election on housing as housing was a critical issue would be really interesting and in some ways it could be an opportunity for housing to actually be fixed in Australia. Mm. Um, but my sense is that people won't be happy about having to go back to the polls. Um, but at least the Greens and the ALP and the Independents are acknowledging what a critical issue it is and it's affecting you know, the health and wellbeing of everyone in the country. It is that important um, and so that's good. We, you know, we get to talk about it um, whether or not we need to have a full election on the basis of it, I'm not sure. We'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks, I guess. Yes, yes, definitely. And Fiona as well, you are going to be uh, next week in Canberra on Thursday yeah. the 10th of August uh, from 12.15 to 1.15 at Parliament House, which is going to be awesome. Ageing in a housing crisis, the report's launching. And just give us an idea of what's that going to be all about. It's going to be the Senator David Pocock's going to be there, Professor yeah. Wendy Stone from Swindon, Swindon, Swinburne University and uh, a few others, including yourself, Fiona. Yeah, so we're launching a report that um, Wendy Stone from Swinburne and Emma Powell from Western um, Sydney University and also we've got um, Curtin University in Western Australia helping with us. We've crunched the numbers on what it looks like for older people in in Australia in terms of their housing based on the last census. And basically what it's saying is that there's around 700,000 older people who are in private rental. And lots of them are paying unaffordable amounts of rent. It's the most insecure form of tenure. You can be evicted at any time. Um, and that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg because that census started from 20, um, 2021. So what we're saying is that this is a real crisis. We're bringing um, together eight women who have got a lived experience of either <coughs> homelessness or being at risk of homelessness or housing insecurity. And we're trying to meet as many decision makers as we can over three days and launching that report on the Thursday in Parliament. Um, So we'll be calling for um, an increase in the investment in public housing for those people on the lowest incomes that are currently in private rental because we know that the market is not going to fix that for them. There's no housing stock that's appropriate for the people that are currently renting who are in low-income households. Um, And we're also calling for a range of other types of housing for those people that are um, that are in the slightly higher incomes but are also in private rental or retiring with a mortgage, which is the other big cohort. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's, it's a big it's a big issue, and and what we're hoping for is is to have these older women and the researchers and ourselves um, get to talk about it in in terms that the decision makers will understand and perhaps actually 
um, do something, treat it with the urgency that it requires, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think it's the unforgotten um, uh, perspective of this of the situation of homelessness, especially uh, we are seeing on the statistics and uh, through the census of unfortunate situations of uh, people who are in the over the age of fifty in that category are becoming homelessness mm-hmm. homeless, and it, it's a scary prospect, uh, especially for those who might be you know on their own or escaping situations of domestic violence, and uh, it's it's a horrible situation, Fiona. Yeah, and and I think, you know, share housing and sleeping in your car and and squatting and all of those things are not not okay when you're in your 50s, 60s Mm. and 70s or even 80s, as some people are are calling um, our service that are in those situations. So um, it is is quite hard when you're an older person trying to compete in the market, trying to negotiate with real estate agents, trying to get online and fill out forms and all that stuff. So that's why we, we think there does need to be special attention for older people. Um, and why we'd like to see services like ours expand across the country as well, because Victoria is the only place that has a specialist older person housing service. Um, so, yeah, it, it's something that we want to talk about in Canberra. And it's Homelessness Week, of course, so there'll be a bunch of stuff happening around Homelessness Week next week as well. Yeah, definitely. It's a it's a great way to uh, great segue into that week as well, Fiona. In that space of um, also with the report with Senator David David Pocock, have you have you put to him what they could pro- what he could propose to the, to government in 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 trying to uh, trying to manage this situation? Well, pressure from him was the reason that we ended up getting this two billion dollars direct investment in housing on mm. top of the housing. Australia Future Fund. So he's really well aware of the issues and very much focused on solutions. Um, so we'll certainly be talking to, to him about things like what sorts of, sorts of housing may be available for older people as they age and also the service response, how to assist older people navigate the really complicated system. Um, so yeah, he's definitely um, a good person to speak to, but we'll also be speaking to people from all sides of politics um, and the, the bureaucrats that are running the um, national um, homelessness agreement as well. So, yeah, plenty of opportunities to talk to people up there. Yes, definitely. And if you want to uh, get involved, you can go to www.houseonfire.oldertenants.org.au to to check that out and put your RSVP there. You can also join. Uh, you don't have to join. You don't have to go to Canberra yourself, Fiona. You can join yeah. on online via WebEx. That's right. Yep. So we will be broadcasting it um, on the internet for people that can't make it, and anyone that is in Canberra, um, we can we can facilitate them showing up in person too. But much easier for people in Melbourne probably just to log on to the website and have a look at it. Yes, definitely. I think the uh, I think the the flight itself at the moment's uh, just going in a lazy four hundred dollars, Fiona, to go to Canberra. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I recommend uh, the, the Webex is not the bad option. Um, yep. Well, thanks very much for your time, Fiona. It's been an interesting discussion, and we'll be uh, keeping our eyes closely on the uh, Senate in the coming days regarding this bill, regarding Housing Australia Future Fund, and also uh, the ongoing issues that are facing people uh, across this country. Yeah, great. Thanks, Patrick. That's okay. Perfect. Good chat, Patrick. Yeah, thank you very much. It was an interesting discussion. It's um, it's fascinating now what the uh, the differences in the bill and what could be proposed. And it's uh, great to see democracy at work with the pressure that's coming from the Greens and the Independents actually making you know a difference in 
hopefully the outcomes. Yeah, this. definitely. I think it's fascinating that David Pocock has really stepped himself up as a, a really kingmaker in the Senate, in my opinion. And um, it's reminding me of the days of um, of the old independent senators of them pushing really hard to get the get the government um, to be on side with the public because. Um, as we know in this country, you don't win elections, you lose them. So you've got to provide the best, uh, the best things for uh, the people. And it's, it's a crucial thing, Claudia. Excellent. We're going to go to a couple of announcements and then we'll be right back. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Cheryl and Troy have been married for more than 25 years. They spent 10 of those years living on the streets of Melbourne addicted to heroin. In a groundbreaking collaboration, photographer and writer Ali MC conveys the couple's compelling narrative in an audio-visual installation and photographic audiobook. H, A Love Story launches at Richmond Library on Wednesday, August 9 at 6.30pm. Entry is free and all are welcome. H, A Love Story, a project about love, heroin and homelessness on the streets of Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the US dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday 6th of August at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page No AUKUS Coalition Vic a 3CR supporter. So we're coming to the end of our show. Yes, but it's uh, it's gone quick, Claudia. I wish it was quick. It goes <laughs> it too quick. We've covered uh, lots of stuff from bail reform to uh, baby talk and Children's Day for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and the important discussion on housing there that'll be a really good one to follow up on in the coming weeks. Yeah, definitely. And those who miss out on the show this morning can catch us up on www.3cr.org.au. Go to the podcast section, find Wednesday Breakfast, and you can listen to all our breakfasts from um, back from 2020 to now, Claudia, if you want to. Absolutely. Yeah, you can listen to us uh, Lots of ways. So thanks for listening this morning, those of you who have tuned in, and thanks to all our guests. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you next week. We've already got some great things lined up. We're going to be talking about Oppenheimer, the movie, and Japanese cultural war memory, and also some tech stuff. So catch you next week. Catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.